Um, I'm going to read the passage. We're going to just study tonight from verse 24 to the end of chapter 9. So just a couple of verses for our Bible study. Um, But before we read it, uh, I do want to say that um, if you don't know me, and and some of you, maybe many of you don't know me, uh, you might leave here tonight after hearing the things that we look at in this text and think that uh, I am a very self-righteous man. Uh, or that I somehow have it all together. And what I would like to do before we even begin this Bible study tonight is let you know that that is absolutely not true, uh, that I do not have it all together. And the things that we study in this text tonight uh, are extremely challenging to us. I, I don't think that you can have the Holy Spirit of God uh, in your life at all and read these verses and, and really understand their meaning and hear their application and not feel a sense of conviction, um, a sense of, of uh, God drawing us um, in a deeper way or warning us about um, eternity and eternal things. And, and so I want to share these things, and I want to share them as honestly and clearly and, uh, and, and um, I guess, pointedly as it is possible, but I don't want you to think in some way that these words don't apply to me because I've already arrived at it. Uh, they're as much for me as they are for you. And so may the challenge of the Holy Spirit in these verses um, draw us into a deeper relationship with Christ and make a difference for our eternity uh, as we seek to serve him together. And so we resume in verse 24. And so the Apostle Paul writes here and he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, or all run, but one receives the prize. So run, he tells us, that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it, that is the athlete, to obtain a corruptible crown, perishable, temporary. But we, the Christian, an incorruptible. I therefore so run, or that is the way that I run, not as uncertainly So fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep my body under, or keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I believe that probably one of the most precious things that a human being can possess uh, in, in this world and in this life is their freedom. Uh, Freedom is an absolute uh, precious gift and privilege uh, that that someone can have. It was a desire for freedom that caused our country to be birthed. It was out of the tyranny of the governments of uh, Europe in the Middle Ages that stirred people to make the sacrifice and risk their lives to come to this country to try to found something wherein man could live in freedom. The price that was paid to obtain that freedom and to secure those freedoms for future generations was high, but it was esteemed worth it by those that were paying it because they knew how valuable it was. And it was in attaining and having that freedom that made our country the great country that it has been for the years that it has been. However, with freedom, a freedom that we have and enjoy, there also comes a certain level of responsibility. And so we learn and understand that the abuse of freedom 
makes our country what it is becoming. And so we look at it in the context of those things. Now, the Bible teaches us that man was made to be free. That that was God's intent and design when he created man is that we would live as free beings. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Then he went on to say, just a few verses after that, whom the Son sets free or makes free is free indeed. And so God's intent for mankind, for each of us, is that we would live in freedom. That's what he wants for us. Now, the type of freedom that God wants us to have is even greater than a political freedom or an economical freedom or a social freedom. But the freedom that Jesus gives to us, that God wants for us, is a spiritual freedom. It's a freedom from the power of sin, the great plight of mankind. All bondage or enslavement is the result in some way of sin. And so God went right for the jugular in doing away with sin and thus providing a spiritual freedom that will find its fulfillment in every other freedom that man can experience. Now, the result of that freedom, freedom from sin, is that you and I in Christ Jesus are no longer under the law. Colossians tells us that the law, the commandments, were nailed to the cross with him. And when sin was done away, so also the law was done away as it relates to our relationship with God. We are free. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says that it is for freedom that we have been set free. And so we're free from the law. And so what that creates for each one of us now is it creates a relationship with God wherein we are to hear from him, from his word, absolutely. We are not without boundary and without his word and his command. But what it creates is it creates gray areas, areas where we don't know if it's right or if it's wrong for us to partake. Does God approve of this behavior or this action or what I'm doing in my life right now, even in my mind or the way I'm worshiping or whatever it is that I'm doing, or does he not? And every issue and every answer is not addressed in it. And so there are gray areas in the Christian life because we're free. Now, freedom carries responsibility. And actions still have consequences. And so the abuse of freedom, even godly freedom, can carry consequences within our life. And so we're talking about these things in 1 Corinthians, these three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. The Corinthian Christians have asked Paul the question, what do we do about the cheaper meats that are sold in the temple shambles? That is the idol meats, the meats that have been offered to idols that we can buy at a discounted rate. We're being good stewards if we pay less money, but are we supporting and condoning what that money is being used then to propagate and the lies that are being spread in the wake of that. And so what is the right thing for us to do? We can't figure it out. Are we free to do it or is God displeased? And so where does using freedom as Christians 
cross the line, the shady line, into abusing those freedoms. And so Paul is answering that question in these three chapters. Now, last week, we talked about how the abuse of freedoms or the misuse of freedoms that we have as Christians can affect the lives of others. Tonight, the Apostle Paul begins to talk about how the abuse of Christian liberty or Christian freedom can have a negative effect upon ourselves. And so in verses 24 through 27, then on into chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is going to warn us concerning the single great danger in being on the wrong side of a gray area. And that danger is the potential of a wasted life. That it is possible for you and I to be blood-bought and redeemed, headed for heaven, but yet to completely waste the opportunity of the life that we have because we are on the wrong side of the gray in the Christian life. So in verse 24, the Apostle Paul begins by saying to them, don't you know that all they, or that they that run in a race run all, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. He begins here by likening the Christian walk unto a race. Now in Corinth, they were famous for what was called the Isthmus Games. Corinth was on an Isthmus. And it was a very um, very popular sporting culture. And every other year, people would travel from all over the empire. And they would converge on Corinth for these games that were second in prominence only to the Olympics. And people would train for these. And it was a big deal for you to be a part of it and to be in these things. And so it was familiar to their culture as Paul draws upon this concept of a race. But then he likens the Christian walk, the life that you and I live, now to a race that would be run by an Olympian or someone that would be in the Isthmus Games in those days. Now, he tells us an obvious fact about the race. He says, everyone who runs in a race runs in a race. That's what he says. And you almost think, Paul, you didn't have to say that. You could have left out that part because we all know that everyone who runs in a race runs in a race. But it's actually an important thing that Paul brings out. And here's why. Because even though everyone who runs in a race runs in a race, people run in that race for different reasons. You can look at a cross-section of those that are running and they might not all have the same exact reason for doing so. Some people might be running a race just for the sake of running it. Well, I just always wanted to do it. I wanted to experience the excitement of what it would be like to be in that crowd that's doing that and to see all the spectators and fans and to grab the cup of water from the people and then just throw it on the ground after drinking only half of it. I, I've always wanted to do that. And that's their whole reason for running the race. They're simply just running to run. Other people might just want the t-shirt or bragging rights or they like to train for it and it's just a goal that they've set for their life. And so there's all of these reasons that people have. But there's only a small margin of those that run in a race that actually run with the intent of trying to win. That they have prepared so intensely and so... What's the word? A lot, you know, because they want to win. They, they're in this thing and they're going to take the prize. They want to stand on the podium and they want the wreath hung around their neck that they had the fastest time or that they hold the world record or that they have the gold medal. And so the motive 
for the race is unknown even though everyone is running in the race. Now, how does the Christian life relate to the race? And the answer to that is this, is that the life that you and I live from the time that we give our life to Jesus Christ until the time that we breathe our last or he returns, that span of time is the course that we are racing on. So just like you would look at the map of where a race is going to be run throughout a city or in a stadium, how many laps will be around this track. Your life is the racetrack. That's what it is at that time. That's your Christian experience. The Apostle Paul used this many times in describing his own life and ministry. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when talking about how he was going to go to Jerusalem and would suffer there, he said, none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course or my race with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. When he wrote to young Timothy a little bit later on uh, in his life, prior to just prior to going off into heaven, he says to Timothy concerning his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course or my race. I have kept the faith. And then he goes on to say, and henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give not just to me, but to all those that love his appearing. And so the apostle Paul looked at his life very much in this context as that of a race that he is running. And so that is the course that every one of us has mapped out in front of us is that we are racers and that we are running in this competitive event headed from here to heaven. And so there's a race. Now, there is also competition. Look around the room. I'm just joking. No. <laughs> we do not compete with one another in, in this race. Okay, that's not the idea behind it, is that, well, I'm going to outdo you in terms of rewards or in terms of accolades or I'm going to finish first and I'm going to stand on the podium and you're going to be ashamed in front of everyone because I was a much better Christian than you were. Now, there are Christians that kind of have that mentality, aren't there? <laughs> but that's not what the Bible is, is talking about. It's not the way that Paul lived his life. But there absolutely is competition in this race. In fact... There are four contestants. There are exactly four people racing against you in this race that you and I are on, racing against us. Number one, contestant number one, is the world. This world that we live in that is the enemy of our pursuit and of our faith. In 1 John chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle John says this. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. And so we are in this race against the world that is constantly seeking to draw us away with its affections, with the things that it offers, its trinkets, its comforts, its pleasures, and it is trying to one-up us and draw us away from the main pursuit of seeking God that we would instead pursue it. And so that is competitor number one. It is the world. 
Competitor number two in this race that we're in is none other than Diabolos, the devil himself. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that he, the devil, goeth about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we are not ignorant of his devices, but he will throw whatever he can, whenever he can do it, in our way to try to trip us up and to take us out of the race so that we can no longer run. And so he is a tempter and he will throw temptations at us. He is a master strategist. So he will observe our lives and watch our tendencies and see where our weak vulnerabilities are. And he will come up with plans just like the coyote. Remember, you know, the roadrunner and coyote, you know, he will do whatever he can to try to take us out of the race. And he is a very real and very powerful opponent that we are against in this race. Opponent number three is by far the most dangerous and the greatest threat to you and I in this race that we are in. And that one is none other than me or you, you, your flesh, yourself, yourself. You are the greatest threat to that race. And that is who Paul is going to zero in on as we move through this. He's not worried about the world. He's not worried about the devil, even though those are real and he has to think about those things. But he knows that enemy number one, who lives in unity with the world and with the devil, his own traitor within, that fleshly old man, sinfully corrupted, born after the nature of Adam, that is drawn towards the things of the world and that loves the temptations of the devil, that that is public enemy number one as it concerns this race. And Paul knew, and we must know, that the world and the devil will put all of their strength into the flesh if they can because they know that the flesh is the most formidable opponent that we have. And that if there's anything that's going to defeat us in this race, it's going to be that flesh. And then contestant number four, the fourth racer in this run, is what the Bible calls the new man. And what the new man is, is when the Spirit of God comes into your life, when you give your life to Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation, the Bible says that you are born again. And that at that point, God redeems you and that your spirit is linked with, united and communed with Jesus Christ and that now you are a new creature or a new creation. It's who the Bible calls the new man. It's the part of you that all of a sudden loves the Bible when you give your life to Jesus Christ. It's the part of you that all of a sudden feels ashamed and hates sin that you used to love and run to. It's the new birth. It's that new man that's inside everyone who's born again. And that's who Paul saw himself as, and that's who you and I are if we belong to Jesus Christ here tonight. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. But the old man, the flesh, as long as we are in this body, is still with us, isn't he? And he would seek to win the race as well. And so there are four contestants in this race. And the Apostle Paul gives to us the admonition that the mentality and focus of our life is that we are to run, not just to run, not just to say that we did, and not for any other motive that a person might have for running in this Christian race, but that we are to run with the mentality that we are going to outpace and outdo and overcome all the other opponents that are seeking to win 
that race. And there's a reason why we would do that, because there is a crown or there is a prize. Is that at the end of your life, listen to me, someone is going to stand on the podium and receive the crown for having been in authority and for ruling over you at the end of your life. Who is it going to be? Is it going to be the world that will dominate you? Will it be the devil who trips you up and defeats you? Will it be your flesh that you are unable to conquer and put under? Or will the new man in Christ Jesus outdo all of the others? Who's it going to be? Someone is going to stand upon that podium and receive the crown of the reward for winning that race. And who gets that crown at the end of your life is indicative of who ruled your life while you were here on the earth. And who rules your life determines the type of life that you have. And that is why Paul gives us the admonition, run to win. Don't run for any other reason. And don't let your life be dominated and your freedom stolen by the world, the devil, or by your own flesh. So if I'm going to run to win, then what is that going to mean? If I am a Christian, am I going to receive this call by the Apostle Paul? Then how am I going to do it? He tells us in verse 25, this uh, by way of illustration and explanation of this. He says that every man that strives for the mastery or strives for the crown is temperate or self-controlled is the word in all things. And he says, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we do it for an incorruptible crown. So he says that if a, an athlete, someone who is running in the Olympics or in some other race is really running with the mentality of winning, then the mentality that they have is that they are going to exercise self-restraint or self-control in every area of their life. Now, if you've ever trained for something or known someone who's training for something, then you know that there's a whole lot more than just exercise and uh, you know brain work that goes into preparing to win a race. You've got to want it. You've got to watch the way that you eat, the way that you sleep, the way that you train. You have to study the way the race works, the way your opponent and your competition work. You have to learn your body and how it works and how it works best. You have to learn about time management and how to use a clock the right way. You have to do whatever it is that you have to do to edge out the competition, even in the smallest details of things, because when you're competing at a level that large, You've got to know you've got to win and you know what you've got to do to win. And that's in the athletic category. Now, listen, an athlete has liberty, doesn't he? Someone who's training for those games and who's training for those games full time and that's their whole life. They have the liberty to do a lot of things. They could go out on Friday night. They could indulge and partake of things that would be completely legal. We're not even talking about you know, um, performance enhancing some things. We're just talking about just regular things, going out for Chinese food or going to the buffet or going out with their friends and going out and having a few or staying up late and watching three movies or watching Xbox or playing Xbox for hours on end. You know, they can do all of those things. But in the mind of a serious athlete, athlete what they're thinking is, is my competition doing this? Is my competition going out on Friday night? Is my competition skipping training sessions? 
Is my competition doing things that are going to weaken their game? Or are they ever edging me out? That's the mentality of the athlete. And then Paul then brings it to us. And he says that's the way that we also ought to be, that there should be the seriousness in the way that we go about it, that we should know the prize and the stakes, that we should be aware of our competition and what they're seeking to do to us, that we should diligently keep disciplined focus so that we can stay ahead of them, and especially as it concerns myself. Now, the question that you ask yourself is, why in the world would I do that? I mean, you know, the, the, the athlete that's going to have a gold medal or a world record or a time or something that they can boast of. You know, they know what they're doing and they know what they're pursuing and why they're doing it. They have a reason behind the race that they're running. Sometimes they don't. I mean, have you ever seen people train? I mean, I go to the gym and, you know, try to maintain whatever I can of whatever's left of this fallen flesh, you know. But sometimes I see people train and I'm saying, why in the world are you doing that to yourself? You know, is there any prize on the other side of it? And when we think of it in the Christian context and we look at, okay, Paul, what is it that you're saying for us to do and running in this race? Why would we do it? What is the incorruptible crown that you're talking about here that you and I, that we could attain that makes it worth it for us to have this level of discipline and to give ourselves so fully to the race that we're running for Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, he calls it a crown. And a crown basically speaks of two things within the life of a Christian. Number one, it speaks of rulership, doesn't it? The one who has the crown rules. So very simply, who do you want ruling and dominating your life? Ask yourself that question right now. Do you want it to be Jesus and the new man? Or do you want it to be your old man, the flesh, or the world, or the devil? What do you want dominating you and wearing the crown of authority in your life? Well, that right there might be enough motivation for some of us to say, well, I don't want to be dominated by something that's going to destroy me or to waste my life. I want to be dominated by what's eternal and what lasts. The other thing that the crown speaks of is our eternal reward. Five times in the New Testament, it talks about crowns that will be given to us, issued to us when we get to heaven based upon what we did while we were here on earth. And that crown will translate into responsibilities. It will translate into capacities, the ability to enjoy heaven and to uh, comprehend it and to experience it and live in it beyond what we can explain or what I could even orate to you tonight because it says that eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But understand this, that that crown is absolutely very real. And this is the time right now while we're on earth that we have the opportunity to build that crown for all that it can be then. Now, here's what I want you to understand about that crown if there's nothing else that you can understand about that crown tonight is that it is not issued based upon a reward chart. In other words, Lord, I taught 11 Bible studies. And so God goes, okay, well, you get a size three and you get a ruby and a diamond and you, you know, it's not like that. It doesn't work like, okay, well, the things that I did for him, 11 glasses of water, you said that if I give a cup of cold water to someone in your name that I won't lose my reward. It doesn't work like that. Here's how it works. Is that God has called us and he's given to us a life and he's given to us a goal. And that goal and that prize is to know him. 
is to be added to, to have character, to be Christ-like. Saul in the Old Testament was given a crown. It was authority, but it was meaningless. He wasn't a king in his heart. He was head and shoulders above the rest. He looked the part, but he wasn't a king inside, and thus he failed and lost his crown. David, on the other hand, suffered for between 10 and 15 years. And during that 10 and 15 years, God did things in his life. He allowed him to suffer and learn and fight and survive and wait and weep and go through things that forged the character of a king inside his heart. So that when the crown came eventually in the timing of God, the preparation was already done and the king was already inside. And it's the same thing that holds true in our place within eternity. It isn't going to be, well, God, I did these things and so now I deserve a crown. But rather, it's what's being cultivated and worked in and worked out of our lives in, in the arena of his wisdom and of knowing him, and the discernment that he gives, and the love that he births in us for other people, and the motive that's pure behind the works that we do, and the capacity that we gain by raising a family, and holding down a job, and keeping responsibility, and getting victory over sin, and hearing his voice, and learning to walk by faith and not by sight. It's all of those things that are forged in us through the discipline of keeping our body under that will make our crown what it is. And what Paul is seeking to say to us tonight is that whatever it costs you in your human side of doing or of dying, it's worth it. Don't run just to run, but run to obtain because that prize from living a spirit-dominated life will carry into eternity. And so Paul testifies to them and to us concerning this in verse 26. He says, I therefore so run. He says, this is the way that I live my life. I live my life as a disciplined athlete that knows that every single thing that I do is going to make a difference in the outcome of this race. And I never let the awareness of that leave my mind even for one minute. I therefore so run not as uncertainly. I'm not running this Christian thing just because I, I want to get into heaven and I want my sins forgiven and I want to do it with a little bit of peace and a little bit of joy and a little bit of uh, you know um, not having fear. That He says that is not why I'm running this thing. He says, I do not fight like one who beats the air. That is, I, I don't fight as one that's blindfolded, that doesn't have vision, that has no strategy in what I'm doing. Everything that I do is very intentional and very calculated because Paul knows that everything he does has consequences that might be good and that might be evil. And so here's what he does in verse 27. And here's the admonition. He says, but I keep under my body. That is, the greatest threat to me in this race, I know, Paul would say, is my flesh. And he says, I do what I've got to do to keep it under, to not let it dominate, to not let it grab the crown and hold the scepter and call the shots in my life of who I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. I treat it viciously. I treat it severely. I make no provision for it. And I do what I've got to do to keep my body under 
And then he says, and to bring it into subjection, or that is to make it obedient to me. You might have in your translation where it says, keep my body under. He says that I beat my body. That's a great translation. I don't think that means that he whipped himself because he's going to condemn that in Timothy and talk about those that mutilate themselves. That's not the idea. The idea is that he is so severe with the uprisings of his flesh that it's as though he was beating it into submission and into obedience. I bring it into obedience and I make, listen, I make my flesh obey what the Holy Spirit of God wants in my life. That's the way that I live. When my kids were very little, I was at the very height of my athletic glory. You're supposed to laugh because that, you know, there's not really much glory in that, you know. But at that time when they were really just kind of uh, coming of age, and I'm talking about my three older ones, um, I was running a lot. I would run four or five miles a day and just kind of really addicted to running, just loved it. And, and I learned a lot from it. I think that they're, like when the Bible says that, that bodily exercise uh, profits for a season, I believe that because, uh, you know, God just taught me a lot of things, just even uh, in, in terms of what we're talking about now. But I remember running with my kids when they were just little. I remember Hosanna when she was just six years old or five years old. We would run, you know, and we'd just run for a couple of miles and at her pace. I didn't make her, you you know, sprint or, or, you know, keep up or any, anything. But, but where we live, you guys know that this is not a flat land. We don't live in Kansas. And that everything around here is hills and valleys. And I would run with them and I, and, I, and I would take them. And sometimes it was all three. I'd have Hosanna, Rocky, and Sarah, and we'd be running. And, and they'd be all at different ages and different levels. And we would come to these hills. And I would talk to them the whole time. And I would just say, okay, you guys, you see that hill? And then, you know, yeah, we see it. And I'd say, do you see that hill? I said, are you afraid of that hill right now? And they, and they, you know, inside were saying, yes, dad, we're definitely, definitely afraid of that hill right now. And, but they would be wise enough to say, no, dad, we're not afraid. We're not afraid. And I would say, good. I said, because you know what that hill is saying to you right now? That hill is saying you can't beat me, but you can beat that hill. I know you can beat that hill. And I would talk to them the whole way up the hill. We'd be running and they'd be going and it would be long and steep. And I'd be saying, listen, your body is telling you, you can't. Are you going to let it tell you you can't or are you going to tell it it must? Because you can do this. You can do this. You can run this hill. You can run this hill. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep going. And they would run and they'd get to the top of the hill and they would finish that hill. And what they learned in that, I hope, and I think so because they're still running and they still have legs and they're not dead, you know, is that your flesh will tell you things that are not true. That either you cannot do certain things that you actually can or that you cannot do things or that you can do things that you actually cannot. And your flesh does not know nor does it want to submit to or obey the power of God which is greater than the power of your flesh. And the question is this. Are you, Christian, going to let your body tell you it can't or are you going to tell it it must in terms of walking with God and walking in this Christian life. Now, why would Paul be so severe with his flesh? And he says this in the conclusion of verse 27. He says, lest, that is, if I don't treat my body this way, he says, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word is 
disapproved. That is, that there's the potential that I could lead a wasted life. That I could come to the end and I could stand before God after having lived 40 years as a Christian or 30 years as a Christian or maybe even 60 years as a Christian and he could look at my life and we could measure it all out and what I live for and what dominated me and what I live for and we could look at it all and he could say, first place goes to the old nature because that's who you listened to and that's who you obeyed every day of your life. First place goes to the world because it drew you in with every enticement that it can throw at a human life. And you gave yourself willingly to every enticement that it, 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 you spent your energy and your resources and your time in the pursuing of the things that the world gives and it comes to nothing. Or you succumb to the temptation of the devil and the crown that rightfully would be yours is right now being worn by him. Jesus gave a very, very firm admonition to the churches in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, when he said, Take heed, let no man take your crown. And Paul was deathly afraid that he would come to the end of his life and that in some way it would all be measured out and be worthless because he gave himself to something other than the Lord in his life didn't count for what it was supposed to count to. Now, how do we apply this to the gray areas? Because that's the context of what Paul is talking about here to these Christians. They asked a question about a behavior that fell under the banner of Christian liberty. That is, I have the right to behave this way. I have the right to partake of this. I have the privilege to do this. Should I do it or should I not? So how does this concept Apply then to that. Here's what we must understand is that the goal of all of life for the Christian, for you and I, is first of all to know him. That's what God wants for us, first and foremost. Paul said every other thing within my life takes a distant second to that one chief pursuit, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that if by any means I might be made conformable into his image and that I might attain that for which I've been called, not as though I have obtained, but this one thing I do, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says that is the chief aim of all of life is to know him and that is what God wants for every one of us that we might know him. He wants us to constantly grow and be growing in the grace and in the knowledge of him that day by day and week by week and month by month, we can measure the course of this race and we can say, God, I know you more today than I did before. I don't, can't maybe quantify it or qualify it exactly and define exactly what you've done in my life day by day and week by week, but I know, God, that there's more wisdom I know that there's more of a foundation. I know, Lord, that I'm more vested and that my roots are deeper in you today than they were yesteryear or a month ago. And that, God, this is the pursuit of my life. He wants this for us. He wants us to be learning his ways and ever being separated from the ways of the old and rooted more so into the ways of the new. He wants us to be growing in his wisdom that, that as we observe life and we see life through the lens of his word, we're taking the things that we're learning in his word and experiencing life and there's an understanding that's being grown within us that translates into wisdom that looks like something when we make decisions and when we go through our work day 
And when we answer a question that's been asked of us, or when we talk to our kids, or when they ask us a question, how we respond, or the way that we deal with our wives, and in all of these things that make our lives what they are, God wants us to be growing in that wisdom. He wants us to be ever more clearly hearing his voice, learning how to perceive what it is that he's saying to us and how he's leading us. That the words of the psalmist where it says, don't be as the the mule that needs to be controlled with the bit and its bridle in its mouth and pulled in the right direction because it's so stubborn. But rather learn to let God lead you with his eye. And that's his desire for us, that we learn him, that we know him, that his will is our food like it was with Jesus. And that that's what draws us day by day, that, Lord, I want to know you and I want to know your will and I want to walk in your ways and I want to hear your voice and be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. His desire for us is that the character of Christ be formed in us so that the life of Christ might be lived out of us, both in the way that we enjoy life and the way that we serve and interact with others. These are the things that God wants for us within our lives. Now, in order for that to take place, there's a few essentials, things that have to happen. First of all, there has to be within every one of us a constant awareness of his presence with us. That's God's will for you. Every moment is that you're aware of his presence, is that you know that he's with you in the full assurance of faith, that there's a short account in your life, even concerning the things that maybe aren't right or twisted. He wants us to be with him in prayer, in his presence. There must be a steady and consistent intake of the word of God within our lives. Jesus said it, didn't he, that the truth will make you free? And so that's an essential, that the word of God be constantly going in. He wants us to be physically and mentally and spiritually as clear as we can and clean as we can, as much as it's in our power so that we can be enabled in doing those things. And he wants spiritual conditions in our lives in which we're always growing. Now listen, here's where it applies. Because if there's something in our lives that is hindering any of that, even though it's lawful, then that something is a device of the world, the devil, or the flesh to take you out of the race. If there is something in your life that you're allowing that you can even justify in scripture, but every time you do it, you have to go and find his presence again because you feel as though you've grieved his Holy Spirit and there's, there's a breach, there's something missing. There's blinders that have been put over your eyes. If that something is there, then that something has got to go. If there's something in your life that might be perfectly legal, but it's choking out the word of God and making it so that you're not desiring it or hungry for it or able to perceive it as you read it. Maybe the presence of movies or too many movies that you're watching are filling your mind and the high places of who you are are so filled and cluttered with other things that when you go to the word of God, there's nothing there. It's perfectly legitimate. You could stand right now and cry, legalist, you spoke against movies. The Bible doesn't do that. No, the Bible doesn't do it. But if I'm being so filled with those things that there's no room for his truth and his life to have place within my heart, then those things have become gray areas that are black areas because they're keeping me from him. Pastor Mike always loves to say it, and it's true. He says a good thing can be a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. And if there's something in your life that's keeping you from him, then that something isn't a worthy something. And God would say, maybe it's time to pray about letting it 
go? Am I letting the temporary pleasures of this life steal what is eternal? The truth of the matter is this, as we think about the kingdom of God and Christians in the days in which we live. That is, that there are many Christians today that are kept under the domination of the flesh simply because they refuse to put the flesh under themselves. There are many here, I would say, even tonight, that are without strength, without hope, without wisdom, without growth, without victory, and without fruit. And some that would even go so far as to say that the reason I'm in that state is because God is withholding those things from me. But let me ask you this. Could it be, if that's the state that you're in tonight, that you would say my life is less than fruitful, could it be, not the sinful thing, But could it be perhaps just the amusements of this life, the pursuit of possessions and money? Could it be laziness? Could it be too much food, too much sex, too much pursuit of other things, too much living for the worldly pleasures of this life that are choking those things and causing them to become unfruitful? Here's the truth, is that all of what God has made available for us is ours in Christ Jesus right now. There is nothing that you and I should lack as it relates to our spiritual uh, uh, um, benefit in him. Not one thing at all. And there's not one hold or power within our lives that is too strong for us to get victory over. There's a story, I'm not sure if it's true, but um, concerning the way that they used to train circus elephants. And that was that when an elephant was first obtained or acquired as a young elephant in the circus, what they would do is they would drive a stake deep into the ground and then they would tie a rope or a chain between that stake and the leg of that elephant. And the elephant, being an infant, would pull as hard as he could with all of his force and would not be able to break the chain or pull the stake out of the ground because it was driven too deep. But because elephants, though they have large heads, they have small brains, And so after a while, they would realize that they didn't have the strength to break the the rope, and so they would stop trying altogether. And so what the circus performers would then do is as the elephant would grow, in order to keep the elephant from wandering off or going where it shouldn't, all they would do is simply just tie a rope around its leg and drag it to a place and just put it to a stick or something that the elephant could easily plow over. But as soon as the elephant knew that the rope was there and could feel it around its leg, it wouldn't even try because it thought, well, this is futile. I've tried to break this chain and I can't do it. I believe that there are many Christians that are living in flesh-dominated existences right now, not because you don't have power over those things, but because there's a rope there and your flesh screams and cries to you, you cannot get victory in this area. You can't dominate me. I'm too strong for you. You can't do it. Well, you're calling God a liar. Because the Bible says that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes to the church there, and he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And what the Bible is telling us here is this, is that God has given every one of us the power to live in an absolute state of victory in our Christian experience. And that's the will of God for every one of our lives. And the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us to do it. And what God asks of us and calls us to is to simply make the decision that that's enough. It's time for the flesh to sit down. We've obeyed long enough. And the flesh will sit down. It will kick and scream and it will fight and yell and it will do things in you and make you nauseous and withdrawn and all the rest. But it will eventually sit down because the spirit that's in you is greater. What's the point? The point is this, is that the decisions that we make as it concerns the gray areas in our lives absolutely make a difference. Not just in the way that it affects others, but also in the way that it affects us. And the biggest regret that you and I could have is when we stand in heaven and we look at our life over the whole span and see it through God's perspective and we realize that we missed the opportunity of making the most of the time that we had here. There are things that we can add to our lives here in earth that we will not be able to add to our lives there in heaven. One of those things is that crown and that reward. Once we're called home, that's it. The time is up. And so the question is not what can we get away with with Christian liberty. The question is, what's the most beneficial and profitable thing for us that we might live a rich eternity and that our crowns would be sure? I always think of Saul. The musicians can come. King Saul. I told you earlier in the study tonight that a crown was placed upon his head, but there was no preparation. The character of his life didn't match the crown that he had obtained. And when he was given the command to crucify and slay the Amalekites, the Amalekites, always a picture in the Old Testament of the flesh, that formidable contender that we have. The Bible says that he partially obeyed. He didn't kill all of the Amalekites. He killed some of them, but he saved the king and he saved the best things of it, the things that he could justify. And the result of it is that Samuel said, you're going to lose it all. You can no longer be king because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord. And, you know, he fought and said, no, no, I'm so sorry. I, you know, and, and, and Samuel ultimately killed Agag, the king, and he died and the rest. But the saddest part of the story is that at the end of Saul's life, he fell upon his own sword and tried to kill himself and wasn't even successful in that. But when someone came and saw him there, and saw that it was Saul the king and the crown that was upon his head, Saul looked up and he said, Who are you and what are you doing here? And the young man said, I am a stranger, a foreigner, an Amalekite. And Saul said, Take my sword and finish me off. And the Amalekite took the sword, he killed Saul the rest of the way, and then he picked up the crown that had been on Saul's head and he took it to David, to King David. It's an incredible picture of if you and I are unwilling to crucify the flesh, then beware that the flesh doesn't dominate you and steal your crown at the last. I know tonight, maybe not the most encouraging study, much more encouraging last week when we talked about the, the grace of the liberty and all, and all of that is, is absolutely true. 
But before you say, man, that was heavy and wish I didn't come to church tonight, let me just leave you with this thought in mind. It's much better to hear it in a church service where we can make choices and decisions about the things that are going on in our lives that can lift up, build up, and beautify our tomorrow rather than to have these things come into the light in our lives on the day that we stand before Jesus when we can do nothing about it then. And my prayer for us tonight is that the Holy Spirit of God not come down on us with a hammer or convict us and tell us that we're fools because he doesn't do that and that's not his heart towards us, not ever. The Bible says that his will for us is only good but that he might maybe put his finger upon one or two areas of our life that are keeping us down right now, that are keeping us out of his presence, keeping us from growing, keeping us from the things that are eternal. And that just tonight, he might motivate us, motivate us in the way that only he can motivate us to say, God, would you tonight empower me to make the decision to put those things under. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live, and I shall live. The Bible says in the Psalms that he will make his people willing in the day of his power. And this is the day of his power. And so may God give each one of us clarity. May he give us vision and insight and wisdom into our own lives. Every one of us have vices. Every one of us have things in our lives that are absolutely lawful, but they keep us from Jesus Christ. Would we esteem him and his kingdom and his will for our lives to be a greater treasure than those things that are temporary, fleeting pleasures or experiences to us that don't last? May God give us wisdom. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for this illustration and this warning that came from your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And we ask tonight, Lord, as we sit in this room, we know that your Holy Spirit is here. And we know that your thoughts towards us are for peace and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope. And so our prayer tonight, Lord, is that you would awaken by your Holy Spirit within us. And that you'd open our eyes and help us to see the true state of where we're at in our race right now. Who is winning today? And that by your grace and power, Lord, we would ask that you would help us, Lord, to put away those things that are keeping us behind. And that you would give us strength to speak to our fallen, sinful self and say, sit down. Would you empower us, Lord? We make it our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.